Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D, and today I'll be covering the case of Martine and Roosevelt Bernard in Broward County, Florida. Let's get right to it. On Monday, June 11, 2018, at about 8.25 in the morning, police officers were dispatched to a vacant lot on South 29th Avenue in Hollywood, Florida, in reference to an accidental electrocution. The body of a man had been found in a field near what appeared to be a downed power line. When firefighters and police arrived on scene, initially, they thought there had been some type of accident. The body was partially burned, and with the downed line nearby, it looked as if the man had been electrocuted. Florida Power and Light and a city inspector were called in to deal with the live power line. But when they responded, they informed police that the wire wasn't live and hadn't been in operation for some time. What started out as an unfortunate accident was looking a whole lot more suspicious, and an investigation was launched. As detectives looked closer, they smelled the unmistakable odor of fuel. The state fire marshal was called in, and he brought along an arson detection dog. According to Fire Rescue One, arson dogs are trained to detect different accelerants that are commonly used to start fires. The specific types of accelerants vary depending on the training program and region, but typically include gasoline, diesel fuel, kerosene, lighter fluid, and various types of solvents. In addition to learning to detect the scent of these accelerants, arson dogs must also learn the difference between the scent of accelerants and other common scents that may be present at a fire scene, such as burnt wood or plastic. The canine brought to the scene detected the use of an accelerant. Due to the condition of the body, cause of death wasn't immediately clear. However, according to police documents, an autopsy was conducted the following day on June 12th and it was determined that the victim had been shot in the head. The victim was identified as 68-year-old Roosevelt Bernard, and as it turned out, Roosevelt had been reported missing days earlier. The circumstances surrounding his disappearance were, well, odd. You see, two days prior, so Saturday, June 9th, Roosevelt was at home with his wife, getting ready to attend a family function. While they were there kind of talking things over and making plans, their son-in-law, 22-year-old Cassandritz Blanc, came by the house. He said that he needed to get some clothes that his wife and their daughter Martine had left behind. At that point, Roosevelt's wife went to take a shower to get ready for the event. She left her husband and Cassandritz in the living room. She went on and took her shower. But when she returned, Roosevelt was gone and Cassandritz was sitting there on the couch alone. He told her that while she was in the shower, a man had knocked at the door and asked Roosevelt to come outside and talk. And Roosevelt had stepped outside to speak with the man, but hadn't returned. Cassandritz didn't know anything about the guy other than he thought he was a Hispanic male. It seemed Roosevelt's wife didn't think much of it at the time. Roosevelt Bernard was known and loved in his community, due in part to the fact that according to WSVN, he owned and managed at least one duplex. He was close with his tenants and visited the property almost daily, always making sure the home was in good shape. He wasn't the kind of landlord you dread stopping by either. 
One of his tenants later spoke to the outlet and described Roosevelt as a, quote, darned good man who was always understanding and helpful. So it seems initially his wife just thought someone had come by and he was out talking, visiting, or helping someone. She figured he'd make it back in time to leave for the event. But the minutes ticked on by, and there was no sign of Roosevelt. Cassandritz was still there, and eventually one of the Bernard's daughters showed up ready to go to the family function. Not Cassandritz's wife Martine, but one of her sisters. Roosevelt still wasn't back, but they all assumed that he'd just meet them over at the party. So as planned, they headed over to the event. The hours passed and Roosevelt never showed up. His wife and daughter left and went home to see if he had made it back to the house. They made it home at around 10 p.m. Roosevelt's car was still in the driveway and his wallet, keys, and cell phone were still in the house. But he was nowhere to be found. The family contacted police to file a missing persons report. Hollywood police responded and the family recounted the events from the night, telling the officer that their son-in-law Cassandritz was the last person to have contact with Roosevelt before he went outside to speak with an unknown Hispanic male. As they had searched the house, they noticed that one of the bedrooms was locked. It was Martine's old bedroom and that was strange because they didn't typically lock the bedroom doors. Police made entry into the locked room, but it was empty. As the family spoke to the officer and recalled what all had happened, putting the story together, there were a couple of things that at the time may have seemed a little off. But now, with Roosevelt missing, were waving like giant red flags. Like the fact that after his wife got out of the shower and spoke to Cassandritz, when he told her about that Hispanic male, he was sitting on the couch, but he now had black gloves on. And just before they all left to go to the event, Cassandritz had to run back into the house after everyone else was outside ready to go because he had left some food. So they had given him the key. He went inside alone and he offered to lock up. As officers were there speaking with the family, more family members began to show up, concerned for Roosevelt. One of them was the Bernard's son, who just so happened to be a police officer in nearby Miami Gardens. As he observed the scene, he noted what appeared to be bloodstains on the exterior door and floor of Martine's old bedroom, the same room that had been locked. And the responding officer and detective agreed. There appeared to be faint bloodstains on the door, wall, floor, and tile grout. As the investigation continued, detectives remained in contact with the family. At some point, they noticed that their garbage can was missing from the front of the house. Things were getting more suspicious by the second. Police needed to talk to Cassandra's Blanc since he was the last person to physically see Roosevelt. So they called him and he came back to the house. He arrived in his white Dodge Charger at roughly 11 p.m. and repeated the same story. Roosevelt stepped outside to talk to that Hispanic male and that was the last time he saw him. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The night wore on into morning, as the Bernard family frantically searched for Roosevelt. As day broke, investigators began to canvass the area looking for clues. Investigators spoke with a neighbor who told them that she had seen a light-skinned black male with blonde tips, which matched the description of Cassandra's Blanc walking in the alley by her home on the day Roosevelt disappeared, between 4 and 5 p.m. After learning this, detectives walked that same alley and found a garbage can, like the one missing from the Bernard's home. And the garbage can had visible bloodstains on the front, inside, and out. Another day passed and it was now June 11th. Roosevelt's body was found in the vacant lot not far from his home. 
As you can imagine, investigators at this point weren't exactly buying their son-in-law's story. And soon, any and all doubt about who was responsible for Roosevelt's murder would be removed. As it turned out, a house west of the vacant field where the body had been found had video surveillance, and it had captured something disturbing. The surveillance had captured Cassandritz and the rest of the family leaving for the event on June 9th at around 4 p.m. in separate vehicles. The Bernard family in theirs and Cassandritz in his white Dodge Charger. Only Cassandritz returned to the home approximately 10 minutes later, but he didn't pull his car into the driveway like a normal person would. He parked along a hedge line in the vacant lot. He was captured on video carrying a black backpack wearing gloves as he walked back towards the Bernard's home. Forty minutes went by when Cassandritz was captured again, returning to his vehicle to retrieve a large black garbage bag from the trunk. He then proceeded to walk back in the direction of the home. Another hour passed when Cassandritz appeared on video rolling a large city-issued garbage can down the street and across the vacant field towards his car. According to police documents, it was clear from that video that whatever was inside that trash can was heavy. Cassandritz then headed to the east side of his car out of frame. This was the area Roosevelt's body was later found. He was captured again, pulling the garbage can back through the field to South 29th Avenue and again disappeared out of frame. Moments later, he returned to his car empty-handed and left the area at around 6.16 p.m. on that Saturday, June 9th. His vehicle was captured in the area again, days later in the early morning hours of June 11th. A white charger pulled up to the area, parked, and moments later, the large flash of a fire was captured. The white charger then fled. You know what all that surveillance never captured? A Hispanic male, like the one Cassandra's claim knocked on the door and the one Roosevelt walked outside to talk to before he vanished. Investigators made contact with Cassandra's Blanc again by phone and asked to speak with him. They played it cool and asked if they could just swing by his house for a chat. At this point, they highly suspected he was involved in the murder of his father-in-law. Detectives not only wanted to talk with Cassandritz, but they needed to make sure his wife Martine was okay. After all, Roosevelt was her father, and throughout the investigation, they had spoken to the Bernard's other children. But detectives hadn't gotten the chance to speak with Martine yet. And besides that, her family hadn't heard from her either. She hadn't dropped by to check on them, and further, she hadn't even called. She had sent a few text messages, but that just wasn't like her. And in light of what was happening, it was concerning to say the least. But Cassandra's Blanc was having none of it. He didn't want detectives to come into the home he shared with Martine and told investigators he would come to the station instead. But he'd bring Martine with him. So they waited. And just as he said, he rolled on up to the Hollywood Police Department. However, he was alone. The story, if you let Cassandra's tell it, was that Martine refused to come. And not only was she not at the police station, her phone wasn't working either, so it would be impossible to speak to her. But investigators definitely wanted to speak with Cassandritz, so they sat down for a little conversation. They let him tell his story, the one about the Hispanic male and how he didn't know what had happened to his father-in-law. And then they started asking questions, like why had he been wearing gloves when he came to visit his in-laws that night? I'm not sure anyone was prepared for the answer. I sure wasn't, however. According to Cassandritz, he was wearing black gloves because his Apple iPhone got really hot and he had a skin condition. Self-diagnosed, of course. He didn't want to break out in hives or get a rash from all of the heat his iPhone was generating. It seemed phone problems ran in the family. Well, at least according to Cassandritz. Of course, he told Hollywood detectives the same old story only adding this time that he was so afraid of the Hispanic male that he didn't even want to give the detectives his address, only telling them that he lived in Fort Lauderdale. Cassandra's was adamant that he left his in-law's home at 4 p.m. with his mother-in-law and wasn't back in the area until later that night, when police called him to the scene to report Roosevelt missing. 
When detectives confronted him with the eyewitness and video surveillance evidence, which obviously determined that story was a lie, he ran out of lies, became uncomfortable, and said he wanted to leave. So they escorted him out, but not without assigning a surveillance unit to tail him. Because at this point, not only were they convinced he had likely murdered Roosevelt, but they were deeply concerned for his wife, Martine. The worry was not only for Martine, but also her unborn child, because at the time, Martine was six months pregnant. You might be wondering quietly to yourself why they didn't just arrest him on the spot. And there were a couple of reasons. One, Roosevelt's autopsy wasn't yet complete, and they were still processing evidence, and two, and most importantly, they were hoping he would lead them to Martine. As detectives followed Cassandritz, Martine Bernard was entered into the system as an endangered missing person, and warrants were requested for her cell phone as well as his. And just as expected, Cassandritz led detectives right to that address he had fought so hard to hide. He led them to the apartment he shared with his pregnant wife. So they waited and watched. Long Crime reported that at one point it seemed Cassandritz was on to police. Hollywood police detective Ryan Rio recalled to the outlet that that night Cassandra's Blanc kept walking out to his unmarked patrol car with a flashlight trying to catch the detective surveilling him. Detective Rio stated, He stops, he comes back to my car, takes a flashlight out, and he starts looking in my car. He keeps going back and forth so we are, for lack of a better term, playing ring around the rosy in my car. But if Blanc was on to police, he sure didn't act like it. After playing ring around the rosy with detectives, later that night, according to police documents, investigators watched as Cassandra's Blanc walked out into the alley, pushing a green waste management trash can. He was struggling to push the trash can before he abandoned it towards the north end of the alley next to a dumpster. He then carried a similar trash container back towards his apartment. 30 minutes later, detectives watched as Cassandra's wheeled a hand truck with large black garbage bags towards the dumpster on the south end of his apartment building. They were close enough to hear him grunting as he lifted the hand truck and trash bags into the dumpster. At this point, they had seen enough. The only problem was that Hollywood police were outside of their jurisdiction. As it turned out, Cassandra's apartment was in Fort Lauderdale. Hollywood police notified Fort Lauderdale police, and a joint operation was underway. Fort Lauderdale police responded to the scene and found Cassandritz in the alleyway, moments after he disposed of the hand truck. Officers opened the trash can he had abandoned further north in the alley and discovered another body. It was later identified as the body of his wife, 20-year-old Martine Bernard. 22-year-old Cassandritz was arrested and transported to the police station in Fort Lauderdale. As investigators processed the scene at the apartment, detectives sat down yet again with Cassandritz. He was read his Miranda rights and he agreed to talk. Veteran Fort Lauderdale detective Orlando Almanzar, who honestly deserves an Oscar for his performance during Blanc's interrogation, calmly sat down and began getting basic information. Cassandra's Blanc told him that he had recently started a new job at a call center, connecting those with substance abuse disorders with help. He claimed that married life with his wife of nine months, Martine Bernard, was bliss, and that the two were expecting their first child, a son who was to be named after Cassandra's. There were no problems in the marriage, and as a matter of fact, no problems in his life whatsoever. For the sake of making it through this interrogation, we'll ignore the fact that he was caught literally red-handed, disposing of his wife's body outside his apartment hours before this interview. Cassandra's Blanc sat in the interrogation room as cool as a cucumber, hands in his pockets, leaning slightly back in his chair, sipping on a Coke and munching on some famous Amos cookies as he spoke. Detective Almanzar matched that energy and listened intently as Cassandritz began to tell one hell of a wild story. He started off by saying that Martine didn't want to go to the family event, which was actually a baby shower, on the 9th. Cassandritz then interjected and complained about his treatment by investigators from the Hollywood Police Department the day before. 
He said he felt as if they were accusing him of doing something and he wasn't happy about it. The detective brought the conversation back, back to his missing wife and Cassandra's dropped the first of many bombshells. Your wife is missing currently or hasn't been seen for a day or two? My wife is missing. Well, here's, here's what's going on. Okay. So are you two having marriage problems or not at all? Okay. Not at all. We just, we have, we have a great marriage. Um, so basically I woke up, um, and I saw a woman at my door. When was this? Tonight, actually. Um, there was a woman at my door. Um, and I was, I, I was, I was startled, who are you? And she explained to me, um, that I'm Martine's friend. Um, she explained to me that, you know, you paid for the cell phone, you, you bought her the cell phone. Do you want her belongings or should I just, should I just throw it out or, you know, burn it? She gave me those options and I said, well, I want it. I mean, now this is, it's like seven o'clock Tuesday morning. About when was this? Um, 5 a.m. Okay. Or 5 a.m. Early, early this morning. Yes, sir. A couple hours ago. Okay, yes, sir. And I've never met her before. Never seen her in a day of my life. Okay. I was, I was really scared because like I told the previous detective, that this is why I didn't want to give my address, mm -hmm. for one, because I didn't want people knowing where I live, trying to kill me, kid kidnap me, you know, torture me, beat me up, whatever. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to be a, um, a victim of anything. So I've got to ask you one thing: Have Have you ever been treated for mental illness? Mental illness, right? Do you say I have mental illness? No, no, I'm asking you if you've ever been treated for it. I don't have mental illness. Okay, I didn't think so, but again, I, I don't know you, so I just oh. have to ask. It's, so the woman shows up, you don't know this woman? Describe her for me. She's black. Um, her name's, her, she said her name was, uh, I think Shawnee, I think. I think that's what she said. She's black. She has braids, a little short, um, she just came to, she came inside my apartment. Older, younger? Younger. She Not looked young. Like what age? She looked 19. Tall, um, skinny, short, fat? Short, skinny. Um, and I asked her, how did you come in? She said I used her, her keys. I put it down in the, the, the kitchen. Now she knocked on the door or you opened the door? She walked herself in. Okay. Um, she walked herself in and she just explained to me, here, read the, read the text message. Hold, hold on. The, the keys, she let herself in with whose keys? Martine's keys. And she had some kind of rag in her hand. Um, and she just threw her belongings towards me. Where are Martine's keys? In the kitchen. She in says, she says. In the kitchen in your apartment? She says yes, that's okay. where she put it. Yes. What do her keys look like? Um, it's got a big M. And okay. It's, yeah. What did she do with her belongings? She just threw it at me. What, um, were, what were her belongings? Her cell phone, um, her clothes. And she said she left um, the bag in the kitchen along with her keys. In case you're confused, because aren't we all, Cassandra said a 19-year-old, which that's an oddly specific age, skinny black woman named Shawnee walked into his apartment and handed him his missing wife's belongings and told him to read a text message. And he didn't call police. He just stood there and collected his wife's belongings, which included a rag. After some circling around, Cassandra got to the text message from his wife. Mystery woman Shawnee told him to read. So basically, basically, I read the text message. She was explaining, um, you know, her issues with her dad. Um, she couldn't take it anymore. Um, you know, basically, it was basically a lot of, like, animosity towards him mm -hmm. through the text message. And she, she basically was like, you know, 
I did it, you know. And did what? Like, she was responsible for her dad's death. Okay. Yeah. So, basically, she, she said she was helped, you know, a, an, an individual named Juan. Um, Juan. Yeah, Juan. Um, and she, she said she took something about taking care of him, too. Um, you know, she... She killed Juan, too? She said, yeah. Had you known your wife to be violent before? No, not at all. Okay. Not at all, but a lot of weird things have been happening lately. Wasn't your wife pregnant? Um, yeah. She's who's, pregnant. whose child was that? Like your child? child? Okay. Yeah, six months. She's still capable of, you know, still walking, moving, right. doing chores. The only thing she can't do is bend. Like so she let me just, to make sure that I understand this right, basically this woman shows you a text, no, the woman tells you, check your text messages. Check my phone. Check your phone. You open up your phone and you have a text message. Is it showing that it's coming from your wife? Yes. So it's not somebody else pretending to be your wife. It's coming from your wife's phone. Yes. And it says, does she say anything about killing her father? Yeah. Okay. She she said it. She when did the text? When did she send the text message? I was asleep. I didn't even realize that I even got a text message like that. She, you know, she she told me, you know, what, why I I was confused. She said, why you don't why don't you check your phone to see you know what's going on? Well, let me ask you this before I before I get confused. When you opened up your phone, did it show up as a new text message? You know how you get that little thing saying you have a text message. Yeah. When was the last time that you looked at your phone last night? Like, what time did you lay down or go to bed? Or well, then I don't remember. I mean, was that text message on there at 10 o'clock last night? I don't think so. 9 o'clock last night? I mean, have you checked your phone since 9 or 10 o'clock last night? Oh, yeah, of course. And it didn't show up as a so, new text message? So basically, so basically, after the father was missing, mm -hmm. Martine's... Like whole demeanor has changed. She she basically doesn't want to be out. I I told her investigations wants to come see you. I texted her that because her phone isn't. Her, there's something wrong with her phone as far as calling. Mm -hmm. um, and I texted her. I said investigations need to see you because you know you you not showing up it makes you look really bad. And this was yesterday sometime. Okay. When was the last time that you saw your wife? Same day, Saturday. You didn't see her Sunday? You didn't see her Monday? I saw her on Sunday. Okay. I saw her Sunday. I saw her, well, today. Today's Tuesday, Tuesday morning. Yeah. Did so you see her yesterday, Monday at all? Did I see her yesterday? Yeah, of course. Okay. I where, saw her yesterday. Where did you see her yesterday? At home. She's always home. Cassandra's claimed that his wife, who was six months pregnant and had never been violent before, had murdered not only her father, but also the mystery Hispanic man who now suddenly had a name, Juan. Martine had then confessed all this through a text message. The story was odd and confusing, and at times, Blanc had trouble keeping his lies, I mean his story straight, going from lasting Martine on Saturday and then on Sunday and eventually settling on Monday. He went on to tell the detective that she had been acting strange. First, she quit her job, a job that he had helped her get. He made sure to point that out. And then when her father went missing, she stopped leaving the house and refused to help her family look for him. He talked in circles and chose to elaborate on the most mundane of details, like how Martine no longer liked her job at the call center she was working at. He continued stating that the last time he had seen his wife was that Monday before, when he had gone to talk to Hollywood police. After she told him that she wasn't going down to the station to speak with investigators, he left and went on his way. Martine texted him and said she was going to a movie with her sister, but Blanc didn't know which theater, what time, or what movie they were going to see, or why they would be sitting in a theater while their father was missing. Anyhow, after speaking with Hollywood police, when he returned home after driving around the city, trying to lose whoever was tailing him, which he believed was either the police or the people involved in the murder, his wife was gone. He then took a shot of some kind of mango alcohol and went to bed. Of course, he woke up to the strange woman standing in his apartment, and we know the rest, or do we? 
After talking about Martine's pregnancy and the healthy baby boy they were about to welcome into the world, roughly 30 minutes into the interrogation, Cassandra's Blanc dropped another bombshell. Um, so the woman tells me that, um, the, oh, another one of the belongings was the hand truck. Um, she carried all this in? No. She, she told me where it was located. She said it was located, um, underneath the leaves, um, and... Under what leaves? Under the leaves, and she said there was blood on it, and I said, are you serious? And she said, yes, um, so you need to take care of that. And I said, okay, um, so I just... Under the leaves where? Um, under the leaves, um, where, where the, the vehicles are parked. Okay. Yeah. Like, is there a pile of leaves there? Or? Yeah. So the woman comes in, she's inside your house, she gives you your wife's phone, mm -hmm. and what else does she give you? And she tells me where the, the hand truck is located. Okay. Um, so that's... When I was the last time you saw the hand truck? When, well, it was sitting in my apartment. When you went to the police interview yesterday? It was in my apartment. So... And when you came back last night, where was it? Well, she... She told me it was downstairs, and it had blood on it, and I never had blood on my hand truck, um, so that's why I had took some cleaning gloves, mm -hmm. because I didn't want to touch all of that, and I just took mm -hmm. a trash bag, I, it smelled really bad, and I just took it. The and hand truck smelled bad? And I threw it out, yeah. Okay. Um, and who did this woman say she was again? Um, I just, I just said, I, I forgot the name. 30 minutes into questioning and Cassandra's had finally come up with some semblance of an excuse for why detectives had caught him disposing of garbage bags and a bloody hand truck. Sure, it didn't make a lick of sense, but it was his lie and the detective continued to let him tell it. Even if he couldn't remember the name of the woman, who had let herself in with his wife's keys and told him his wife was a double murderer. He droned on and on about the furniture and the hand truck, and the detective, who has more patience than all of us put together, pretended to believe him. And then, Cassandra's suddenly remembered the gun. So in, the, in this message, and, and we'll, we'll try to pull that up down the road here, she tells you that if I understand you right, basically she she admits to killing her father. She 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 talks How a lot. How did her father die? Her dad. Yeah. She shot her. Him. Him. She okay. shot him. So she says that she shot her father, and and the man that helped him, Juan. She and says she shot Juan too. Something about some. I. She sent me. She sent me a text message. Um like towards me mm -hmm. it started off with I love you Cassandra and then she sent me a paragraph's worth and then she also sent me what she sent her sister um, she said um, and I'm reading this and I know it's towards her sister because you see her sister's name comes up a lot Joanne right. Joanne Joanne well, so I I was reading it and a lot of what I was reading was like really bad hatred towards her dad. Okay. Well, I mean, we can get we can sort all that out later. But why is she telling you all this, and then this other woman's bringing her stuff back to you? Like, what was she the in in the text message? She said that um, she wanted to kill herself. Mm -hmm. um, and after she she died, she wanted to be burnt, like into fire. Did she say how she was going to kill herself? A gun using the, wom the, the woman's brother's gun. What kind of, does she have a gun? Does she have a gun? Right. Not her, but sounds the, w the way the, well actually I don't know actually, she may very well have a gun, but based on the text message it sounds like she doesn't because Martine is asking her for her brother's gun. That okay. makes sense. So, if I understand this right, and correct me if I'm wrong, she's saying that 
and, and it's all written down somewhere. So she's saying that she shot her father, and then she shot the other guy too? Yes. So that's two of them. Mm -hmm. And you don't know, and you think it was the other guy's gun that she used? Perhaps. Have it's you ever seen her with a gun before? No. Do you have a gun? No. Okay. And speaking of, um, so basically another thing she another thing she gave me, like threw at me, was the gun. Mm -hmm. um, it came in a, 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 a box with a bag, um, and I looked. She she before I opened it, she said, "You're probably gonna you're probably really gonna need this," and I said, "Need what?" And then I opened it. I I saw the gun. Holy shit! Tell me what the gun looked like. It's it's literally, it's it's literally the gun. It it's 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 got like um like a, a cylinder type thing. Do you know the difference between a revolver? That's what it is. And a semi-automatic revolver. Semi-automatic has. I know what it is. I know what it is. It's a revolver. Where you pull the absolutely. And a revolver's got the wheel that folds out. Absolutely. Okay. So black black or silver? Chrome. I think it was. Stainless, gray, black. I think it was black. Okay. I think. Big black gun, or silver. Big, little, small. And I'm looking at it like, holy shit! Like, I've never, cause I've, I've never touched a gun before. I've, mm -hmm. I've never, I've never had a gun. I've never purchased one. Never had one. So I'm, I'm looking at it I'm like holy shit and then it's got that the the box of ammunition right I'm looking at it and it's I'm got like, all of it the gun and the ammunition she said you're probably gonna need this okay you're probably gonna really need this why would you need it because I don't know she she feels as though maybe people are gonna come look and she her. handed this to you yeah she just said you're probably gonna need this where's that now it's it's in the apartment um, in my bedroom a gun? Mystery woman Shawnee had handed this man a gun, complete with ammunition, told him his wife had killed two people and was planning on killing herself and their unborn child. And this wasn't what he led with? This wasn't even in the top 10 things he thought were important to tell the detective. He showed zero concern for the well-being of his wife or child, and he continued on with his stupid-ass story. He went on to say the woman had carried the murder kit in what he called a church bag, explaining it was a goodie bag that they give you at church. How he knew this, nobody knows. Eventually, the detective walked out to take a break and Cassandra's requested more damn cookies. When Detective Almanzar returned, it was time to get down to business. He asked Blanc point blank where he thought his wife was and he said he didn't know. He went on to claim that after he threw the bloody hand truck away, he went walking around looking for his wife. When pressed further, Blanc said that he believed his wife killed herself. Detective Almanzar walked Blanc back through the story one last time, the mood of the interrogation notably shifting with each unbelievable detail. The detective masterfully told Blanc he knew that this hadn't happened on purpose, and he dropped a bombshell of his own. He confirmed what Blanc had thought, that the police had been watching him. They had seen him dispose of his wife's body, they knew he had murdered them both, and that this Shawnee woman was made up, as was Juan. They just needed to know why, why he had done it. Blanc sat there staring and the detective's appeal for him to just tell the truth to get it off his chest fell on deaf ears. That was until Detective Almanzar brought up the fact that he could go to the prosecutor and tell them that he confessed and showed remorse. At that point, Blanc seemed interested, asking what would happen if that was the case. He seemed interested in cooperating if it could benefit him in some way. But he needed a few moments to consider it, and he wanted to eat his cookies first. As Blanc snacked, the detective filled him in on how his apartment was being processed for evidence, as well as their cell phones, making sure to let him know that the location data would be pulled off the phone and it would tell the whole story. Where Martine was when she had sent that paragraph-long text and his exact location when he received it. In the kindest and most professional way, he told Blanc that he didn't believe his story. And at this point, with the evidence they had, he was screwed. 
Realizing his fate for the first time, Cassandrin's Blanc broke down in tears. I mean, they were definitely crocodilian, but they were there, and the detective saw an opportunity and ran with it. Just let it go. What happened? Cassandra, what happened? How come? Where did it happen? My life is done. Where did it happen? Was it in the apartment? over, I'm gonna get raped in prison. Excuse me while I compose myself. That gets me in my feels every time. His father-in-law dead. His wife murdered. His firstborn son taken before he ever even had a chance. But he was only worried about himself. Anyhow, as I was saying, Detective Almanzar took the opportunity and ran with it. He continued to tell Cassandra's that he would feel so much better if he'd just get it out. He outlined what he believed happened, that Cassandra's had murdered his father-in-law and his wife Martine had found out, confronted him, and so he had killed her too. The story the detective put together from what evidence they did have at the time made a whole lot more sense than anything Cassandra's Blanc had come up with so far. And it was almost correct. Almost. But Detective Almanzar was in for another shock when through those big old crocodile tears, Blanc told him he was ready to tell the truth. He had murdered both his wife and father-in-law, but the truth was more disturbing than anything the seasoned detective could have imagined. Cassandra's Blanc told the detective that it had all began days before Roosevelt Bernard had been reported missing, when on June 4, 2018, he had shot his wife Martine because she, quote, disrespected him. For nearly a week, he left her body and that of his unborn child's in the apartment as he devised a plan to cover up his crime. He planned to dismember her body before disposing of it, and though he attempted, he was unsuccessful. Five days after he murdered his wife, he drove over to his in-law's house with plans to murder his father-in-law. He was welcomed into their home and sat on their couch, chatting it up, waiting for his opportunity to strike. He came prepared with a gun and gloves, and when his mother-in-law went to go take a shower, he shot Roosevelt Bernard from behind because he wasn't able to look him in the eyes while he murdered him. He had shot the 68-year-old man in his wife's childhood bedroom. He locked the door and calmly went and sat his cowardly ass back on the couch, telling his mother-in-law that bullshit story about the Hispanic man. Oh, and remember when he had to run back inside to get his food? Yeah, well, that was just so he could leave the back door unlocked, so he could return to clean up and get rid of his father-in-law's body, which he did, ultimately disposing of it in that vacant lot where, as we know, he was captured on video surveillance. He returned to the lot two days later, bringing gasoline to set the body on fire. Why? Why had he killed Roosevelt Bernard, who by all accounts had been nothing but kind to this bottom-feeding son of a bitch? Though Blanc never outright gave a reason, I think we all know. It seems Roosevelt's murder was just part of the cover-up, as crazy as it was. 
He'd frame his wife and claim she committed suicide, as he had in that confession. And since Blanc didn't have the good sense God gave a goose, he thought police would fall for it. So he sent himself paragraphs of text messages from his wife's phone explaining every detail of the whole twisted story. Surely they'd believe him then. His plan was going off without a hitch, or so he thought, until detectives literally caught him in the act of discarding his wife and child. He stuck to that stupid-ass story until it was clear nobody was buying what he was selling. At that point, he gave it all up for some hope that coming clean would somehow save him from Big Bubba. Cassandra's Blanc was charged with two counts of premeditated murder and two counts of abuse of a dead human body. Despite his full confession, he later entered a plea of not guilty. Those two counts of murder would later be upgraded to three on account of the child Martine was carrying. Everyone looked forward to the trial, especially the prosecution. I mean, it was a slam dunk case, but I don't have to tell you that. According to arrest warrants obtained by the Sun Sentinel, not only did officials have the confession, the cell phone records proving Blanc was impersonating his wife after her death, you know, confessing to the murder of her father, Blanc had also used his phone to contact someone online to buy the gun. And investigators had retrieved pairs of latex and work gloves, a black trash bag, a kitchen knife, and a red gas can from his vehicle. Needless to say, prosecutors were seeking the death penalty. If ever there were a case, this was it. But Blanc's defense team had a strategy. A strategy that failed, but even the most guilty of defendants is entitled to a zealous defense. They gave it the good old college try and filed a motion to get the confession thrown out. But it didn't work. And seeing no other options, they made a deal with prosecutors. The death penalty was taken off the table in exchange for a guilty plea. On Wednesday, September 6, 2023, Cassandra Blanc pled guilty to all five counts. Seven News Miami reported on the proceeding. Blanc offered up a half-assed apology to the victim's family who were in the courtroom. An apology so half-assed, it's not even worth me repeating. He was sentenced to three life terms with no possibility of parole. But even a lifetime in prison doesn't feel like enough for a man who completely devastated a family, who had taken him in as one of their own, though his sentence did give them some peace. Roosevelt's son and Martine's brother, Roosevelt Bernard Jr., spoke to the outlet after the sentencing. He stated, I would say I feel more relieved that the situation is over. We opened our family to him. We loved him. He had a place to stay, and for him to do whatever he did, there's no way to excuse that. The way everything played out and how justice was served, our family can finally have a sense of peace in knowing that he won't be able to do what he did again to anyone else. Roosevelt Jr. remembered his sister, stating, quote, She was charismatic, loving, the one to make us laugh. Martine Bernard was 20 years old, expecting her first child, a son, a son that she should have had a lifetime with a son that in this life she never even got the chance to meet. Roosevelt Bernard Sr. was remembered as a family man, the glue that held everything together. He overcame adversity and always sacrificed for his family. He was strong and resilient. His son, Roosevelt Jr., stated, He just always had us together as a unit. I didn't realize it. He was my hero. One more quick but important thing before we go. A study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association this January found that in the U.S., homicide was still one of the leading causes of death for pregnant women, and it has been for over 20 years. In fact, it has been ever since we've been tracking the statistics. This, of course, is due in large part to domestic violence. All women suffering from intimate partner violence are at risk, but particularly black women who, according to the study, have a 5.3 times higher risk of dying from homicide when compared to other races while pregnant. Oftentimes, during pregnancy, intimate partner violence begins or increases in severity. May we all be reminded to pay close attention to the women in our lives who are at risk, especially during pregnancy. Ask the questions, even if they're uncomfortable, 
Let her know that you're there when she's ready. Know the resources in your area. Develop a plan. So when she's ready to take that first step, you know in which direction to guide her. Sometimes the women you least expect are suffering alone in complete silence. If you yourself are suffering from domestic abuse, please reach out to someone you trust and start your path towards freedom. Whether that's a family member, a friend, a neighbor, or your healthcare provider, or a domestic violence hotline, there is help and someone out there who can help you get out. In the U.S., you can find resources at thehotline.org or by calling one 800 799-7233. To learn more about this case, you can head over to my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these podcasts. I'll be bringing you an all new episode next Thursday. So make sure you hit that subscribe button if you haven't already so you don't miss it. You can finally get all your episodes ad free just the way you like them for just $2 a month. And as a member of Patreon, you'll be the first to be notified when new tiers will be launched with exclusive episodes and a few bonus surprises. Go to patreon.com slash least of these to support the show today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.